O God, it is Your glory to always have mercy, and so be gracious to us. Yes, we continually go astray from Your ways, and so, Lord, bring us back to Yourself again and again. Indeed, bring us to Yourself today so that we may, with broken and contrite hearts and with steadfast faith, embrace Your revealed truth and hold fast to Your unchanging Word. O Lord, we give You thanks and praise for Your steadfast love and for renewing Your mercies every morning. Today, may we especially remember Jesus Christ, Your eternal Son, who was made man, the Word made flesh for us and dwelling among us. May we remember His sufferings and sacrifice on our behalf, His love shown forth in the broken body and shed blood of the cross. Lord, we thank You for His shame and suffering are our glory and hope. His death is our life. He who knew no sin became a sin offering for us to reconcile us to You. And so today, Heavenly Father, give us Your gifts. Indeed, give us Yourself through Your Son. O Lord, we know that our prayers and hymns will not be heard because of their beauty or eloquence, but because Christ Jesus has made a way for us into Your heavenly sanctuary. We know we could never be worthy to sit at Your table and eat Your food. But in Christ Jesus, You make us worthy partakers, worthy to feast upon Christ Himself. We know, Lord, that His fasting has brought us to this feast. His prayer has opened up a way for our prayers to be heard. His sacrifice has opened up a new and living way for us to offer You spiritual sacrifices. And so, Lord, today, may we do this, and so may You be glorified. Oh, Father, may we be blessed today so that we can go forth from here blessing others with love and truth. May we know Your mercy and grace today so we can go out from here showing Your grace and mercy to others. May we hear Your truth today so we can go forth from here proclaiming the good news, the truth of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, great Father, in the name of Your Son and in the power of Your Holy Spirit, this is our prayer of praise and thanks. Amen. I also want to read for us this morning from Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, I ask that you would help us to live our whole lives as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, looking to him to please him and not merely to please men, knowing that our inheritance and reward is sure in him. Oh, Father, this is our prayer that you would strengthen our faith. And so strengthen our obedience and our service. Through Christ Jesus we pray, and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. As you probably know by now, this year we are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Indeed, it is something worthy of celebration. And one of the reasons it's worthy of celebration is because the Reformers rediscovered several key foundations of the Christian faith. We've already looked at how they recovered the authority of Scripture. Uh, Later in the year, we will look at their recovery of 
justification by faith and salvation by grace. But one of the most important rediscoveries of the 16th century Reformation uh, was uh, the doctrine of vocation or the doctrine of calling or the priesthood of all believers as it's also known. Uh, the Protestant vision of vocation was spiritually and culturally and economically revolutionary. Indeed, so much of the freedom and prosperity that we enjoy in the modern world may be traced back directly to this doctrine uh, as taught by Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, and the other great reformers. Uh, the Protestant doctrine of vocation not only gave rise to what we uh, often call the Protestant work ethic or the Puritan work ethic, it really gave rise to a whole new form of civilization as if the seed planted in the gospel was finally taking full root, full flower uh, in a new and powerful way. And so really the, the history of the Western world in general, and I would say of the United States in particular, cannot be understood apart from this doctrine, the Protestant doctrine of vocation. Uh, sometimes people think that the word vocation is just fancy Christian jargon for your job, uh, as if the word vocation and the word job were just interchangeable. But actually, uh, that's not the case. There's uh, much more going on with that word vocation. The, the truth is, as Christians, we all have multiple vocations. But what the doctrine of vocation does, rightly understood, is it provides for us a blueprint for all of life, including not just work, but cultural engagement, family life, everything. Vocation helps us understand how to balance work and family. It helps us understand how to schedule our time and to arrange our priorities, sometimes in ways that actually run very contrary uh, to the Christian subculture all around us. Now, I'm going to focus primarily this morning on vocation as it relates to our daily work. Again, um, our, our nine-to-five type work, you could call. Uh, but certainly I want you to understand that vocation is much broader than that. It's much bigger than that. And it includes all the roles and responsibilities that God has assigned to us, not just in our daily job, but in family, in state, in church. Ultimately, everything God has called us to do is part of our vocation. Vocation answers the basic question, how can I serve God. This is a question all Christians ask. We know God has served us in Christ Jesus. God serves us each week in the liturgy. God serves us. God is our servant in a way, giving us His gifts, giving us His salvation. We want to know how can we uh, return service to God. How can I serve God? Sometimes you'll hear Christians say, oh, I wish I had more time to serve God, but I'm too busy raising my kids. Or, oh, I wish I had more time to serve God, but I'm just so busy getting this new business off the ground. Uh, or sometimes you'll hear someone say, this year I'm really going to get serious about serving God, and so I'm going to pray for an hour every day, and I'm going to go on a mission trip this summer. Or you'll hear a young person say, you'll hear a young man say, I really want to serve God with my life, and so I'm thinking about becoming a pastor or a missionary. Now, obviously, desiring to serve God is wonderful. That's what we want to do is serve God. Prayer time is wonderful. If you can pray an hour a day, that is glorious. Mission trips are wonderful. What a great way to spread the gospel and participate in what God is doing in the world. 
Uh, becoming a pastor or a missionary can be a wonderful thing. The problem comes when we think of those as the only ways to serve God or even as privileged ways to serve God. Indeed, when we do that, ironically, what we're doing is undoing the Reformation. We are reverting back to the view of the late Middle Ages that the Reformers delivered us from. See, in the late Middle Ages, the world that Martin Luther and John Calvin entered into They would use the language of vocation. They would use the language of call. God calling people to specific work. But it really only applied to priests and monks and nuns. They were the only ones who had callings or who had vocations. Everyone else had just a job. And the Reformers came along and as they studied the Scriptures and their eyes were open to these truths in the Word of God, they said, no, all Christians are called to their work. All Christians are called by God to their work. Their work is given to them and assigned to them by God. And it's to be done for His glory and for the good of their neighbor. The Reformed view of vocation really is summarized in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17, where Paul writes this, Let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Paul is speaking to the Corinthian Christians here and he says, God has assigned you your life's work. He has called you to perform it. Now see, there are other contexts in the New Testament where Paul would use the language of calling to describe life in the church. We're called to certain tasks in the church. Or he will use that language of calling for church office. He'll speak of being called to be an apostle or how prophets or pastors or other church officers are called to that specific work. But here in 1 Corinthians 7, it's different and it's much broader. Here he uses the language of calling to describe those social and familial and economic roles that we all have in society. What we might call our secular jobs even. Just as God gives gifts to Christians for servants to build up the church, as part of our calling, so He also equips us for service in the world to build up the human community for the sake of human flourishing. This also is our calling. And so that means your daily work, wherever you are in life, whether you're a student going to school or a mom raising children or a a, a worker out there in the working force in in the world in that way. Whatever your particular tasks are, whatever responsibilities you have, whatever tasks, tasks and responsibilities make up your day, those are God's assignment for you. Those are God's call on your life. And when we see it this way, it really revolutionizes the way we work and the way we view our work. John Calvin described it this way. This is his comment on 1 Corinthians 7, 17. He says, The Lord commands every one of us in all actions of life to regard His vocation, that is, to regard His call on our life. To prevent universal confusion being produced by our folly and temerity, He has appointed to all their particular duties in different spheres of life. And that no one might rashly transgress the limits prescribed, He has styled such spheres of life vocations or callings. In other words, God's given you work to do and He wants you to know that work is His assignment. It's His 
calling he has given to you in particular. Uh, Calvin goes on, he says, it will also be no small alleviation of his cares, labors, troubles, and other burdens when a man knows that in all these things he has God for his God. And so the magistrate will execute his office with greater pleasure. The father of a family will confine himself to his duty with more satisfaction. And all in their respective spheres of life will bear and surmount the inconveniences, cares, disappointments, and anxieties which befall them when they are persuaded that every individual has his burden laid upon him by God. Hence also will arise peculiar consolation since there will be no employment so mean and sordid, provided we follow our vocation, as not to appear truly respectable and to be deemed highly important in the sight of God. You see what Calvin is saying? He's saying when you understand that your work is your calling, then you are motivated to perform it more faithfully and more fully because you know that it's pleasing to God. You don't have to doubt that anymore. What does God want me doing with my life? How can I serve God? Now you know these tasks have been been laid upon you by God. And when you encounter all kinds of difficulty in your daily work, you realize that these burdens are laid upon you by God for your ultimate good. And you also realize that those parts of your job, those parts of your daily tasks that may seem demeaning or even beneath you really are not. Those two are part of God's assignment for you. That's the big picture uh, of vocation. Flowing out of Scripture, the Reformers made two basic claims about work that we want to look at this morning. Two basic claims about work that made up their doctrine of vocation. First, God ordains work. And second, God works through our work. God ordains our work and God works through our work. Let's look at each of these. God ordains our work. God has ordained work for humans. God ordained work for humans in the very beginning. You see this if you go back to Genesis chapter 1. The creation account uh, is really also the beginnings of our understanding of human vocation. In Genesis 1, what do we find? God is the creator. You could even say God is the original manual labor, getting his hands dirty, making the heavens and the earth, making all the creatures, making man. And when God makes man, what do we find? God makes man in his image. Well, what does it mean to be an image bearer? What does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, if God is a worker, it means we're going to be workers as well. If God works and man is made in his image, then man must be a worker as well. God says in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth. This is known as the dominion mandate. Man will exercise dominion over the creation. Ruling the creation as as a king. Dominion is in fact a royal concept in Scripture. To, to, to exercise dominion is a royal task, a royal calling. And so what is man to do as a king of creation? Man is to develop and mature and glorify the creation, transforming the Garden of Eden into the new Jerusalem. That is indeed the trajectory of Scripture as a whole. It begins in a garden and it ends in a garden city in the book of Revelation. And man's call is to take all the raw material and all the potential built into the creation and transform the raw material of creation into this glorious and beautiful city 
of the new Jerusalem. And thus, God shows us work gives man's life purpose and meaning and direction. In the beginning, work was significant and work was joyful. And indeed, we can derive from this because God ordained work. Work of all types can be forms of service to God. All work has a certain dignity to it. Sometimes we think of of certain jobs uh, as just being demeaning jobs, demeaning type work. But this mandate in the beginning shows us that all work has significance and value and purpose before God. This is how Martin Luther put it. He says, it is pure invention or pure fiction that the Pope, bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate, while princes, lords, artisans, and farmers are called the temporal estate. This is how medieval society was organized. You had the spiritual estate, who are basically the clergy of the church, and then the temporal estate, everybody else who worked these jobs in the world. Luther says this is indeed a piece of deceit and hypocrisy, yet no one need be intimidated by it, and that for this reason. All Christians are truly of the spiritual estate, and there is no difference among them except that of office. We are all consecrated priests by baptism, As St. Peter says, you are a royal priesthood and a priestly realm. And as the book of Revelation says, Revelation 5, thou hast made us to be kings and priests by your blood. See, Luther says this whole dichotomy between a spiritual estate and a temporal estate is, is a deceit. It's a hypocrisy. Actually, all Christians are called to a spiritual estate. All Christians are priests and kings before God. Luther goes on and says this. He says there's no true basic difference between laymen and priests, princes and bishops, between religious and secular, except for the office and work. But he says not in status says they are all of the spiritual estate. He says, um, he says uh, a cobbler, a smith, a peasant, each has the work and office of his trade, and yet they are all alike consecrated priests and bishops. Further, everyone must benefit and serve every other by means of his own work or office so that in this way many kinds of work may be done for the bodily and spiritual welfare of the community just as all the members of the body serve one another. Luther says there is no spiritual and temporal dichotomy or sacred and secular dichotomy in our work. All of our work is really a sacred calling, and all Christians are priests before God. God has ordained all kinds of different work. Indeed, Martin Luther King Jr. followed his namesake when he articulated his vision of work in one of his famous speeches, he said this. He said, if you're a street sweeper, and we might think of that as a a demeaning kind of job, but he says, if you are a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. Christian vocation, the Christian doctrine of vocation does this for us. There is no dichotomy between, say, church work and secular work. It shows us all the work we do matters to God. Not just the work of the religious professionals, but every Christian in any field of endeavor. We all have the same status before God, even if we do different types of work. Our callings may vary. 
But the work all has value before God. This indeed is a big part of what the Reformers meant by the priesthood of all believers. I won't say it's the whole of it, but it's a big part of it. We've already seen Luther use that language of Christians as a royal priesthood. What does it mean for us to be priests? What do priests do? Priests mediate God to others. And in a sense, that's what we're doing in our work. God is providing for others through us. God is loving and serving others through us. God is working for others through our work. And so we are priests to others in this way as God is is using us and working through us on behalf of others. Priests also offer sacrifices. We know this is central to the life of the priest. He offers sacrifices. And and, and Luther's point in talking about the priesthood of all believers is to say all Christian work is sacrificial. And so the cobbler is a priest. The banker is a priest. The lawyer is a priest. The doctor is a priest. The garbage man is a priest. And his work is a kind of liturgy. Indeed, it is his liturgy that flows out of the liturgy. This is the central liturgy we all gather to do together. But flowing out of this, we each have our particular liturgies, our particular ways of offering sacrifice to God. The work itself is a sacrificial offering. And so as a priest, you do your work for the life of the world. Offering yourself sacrificially, pouring yourself out sacrificially in your work. Now, of course, the work needs to be done. Well, if you understand yourself as a priest in this way, you understand that you need to do your work with confidence, with, uh, with, a, with a level of excellence. Certainly, that's the case. I think Paul shows us that in Colossians 3, the passage we read, where he says, do all things heartily because you're working for the Lord. Do all things with excellence uh, is, is what Paul is saying there. Dorothy Sayers makes the point. She, she says, you know, a lot of times uh, Christian uh, churches will, will tell, uh, for example, will tell a carpenter who's a member of the church things like, don't get drunk in your leisure time and show up for church on Sundays. And she says, that's all well and good. But what we really need to be telling the Christian carpenter is make good tables. The very first demand that your religion makes upon you if you are a Christian carpenter is make good tables. That's it. We have to do our work with excellence because we are a royal priesthood. That is part of it. But I think it's easier for us to pursue excellence in work when we recognize that our work is a form of worship. And we worship God, we bring God glory by doing our work with excellence, with confidence. So Martin Luther makes this point as well. Luther says that a Christian cobbler does not show his faith in his work by making bad shoes that have little crosses hanging from them. No, he shows his Christian work, he shows he's a Christian in his labor simply by making good shoes. Leslie Newbigin says, the priesthood of the people of God is to be exercised in the midst of the secular world of business, labor, politics, and culture. If this is where we exercise our priesthood, if in everything we do in these realms we are offering sacrifice to God, then we must do our work in all of these realms with as much excellence as we can muster. We must do it as best we can. Which means working hard. It means avoiding laziness. It's interesting. The Proverbs 6 passage we read this morning, as well as the Second Thessalonians passage this morning, both address the issue of idleness or laziness. 
And they show us we must be a hard-working people. But again, I think it's easier to work hard when we recognize that we are priests offering sacrifice before God. See, really, sacrifice is at the heart of every vocation for the Christian. And so the desk becomes a kind of altar. The baby's changing table becomes an altar. The workbench becomes an altar. The cubicle becomes an altar. The office and the kitchen and the boardroom and the lab are all holy of holies. They're all sanctuaries where Christian workers offer a sacrifice of praise to God through their labors. We are priests before God. Priests offer God's work to humans and they offer human work to God. And that's what vocation is really all about. So in the beginning, work was good. God ordained work. God made us in His image to be workers even as He is a worker. Work is His gracious gift. We have to understand work in light of creation. But we also have to see how work has gone wrong. See, this glorious situation in the beginning was not to last. These glorious working conditions and this glorious work Adam was given to do. It was not to last. We know work doesn't work as it should today. And that's because Adam and his wife rebelled against God. And when Adam and his wife fell into sin, they brought a curse into the world. And the fall, this falling away from God, impacted every aspect of human life, including work. And so in Genesis 3, you know, we're not very far into the Bible before Adam and Eve have fallen away from God. Genesis 3, as God comes to them uh, and um, pronounces judgment on their sin, God says to the woman in Genesis 3, I will multiply your sorrow in childbearing. And, and He does this because bearing children is obviously central to the woman's vocation. That's her primary or central field. And so that's where the fall hits her primarily, is in this realm of childbearing and rearing. To the man, God says, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the work of the field. In the sweat of your brow, you, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. The man is cursed in his primary realm, which is out in the world, where he works. I find it very interesting, in most languages, including our English language, the word that we use to describe a woman in childbirth, and the word we describe what a man does out in the world, is the same word. We talk about a woman going into labor, and we talk about a man's labor out in the world. There's a reason for that. There's a deep connection there. Two forms of labor, but they're joined together, and they're both impacted by the fall. The fall tears the fabric of creation. Man and woman and the world are now broken. Yes, we still work, and work is still a blessing, but now it is a curse blessing. Work predates the fall. Don't think of work itself as some kind of punishment or judgment. Work itself is good. Work itself is not the curse. Work itself is a blessing. But now it is a cursed blessing. Work has been impacted by the curse. Work in every realm. Work in the beginning was sweet. Now it's by the sweat of our brow. Work in the beginning was a blessing. Now it has become toil. 
We get thorns and thistles in our hands as we seek to do our work. And so if you find your job frustrating or unfulfilling, or if you find family life painful and difficult, Genesis 3 explains why. In a fallen world, it often seems if it can go wrong, it does. It often seems that the world is stacked against us. Think of all the ways work can go wrong. We can overwork practically working ourselves to death. We can underwork, being lazy and taking too much leisure time. We can find ourselves unemployed. There are few social disasters greater than unemployment, especially for men. Uh, It's just a social disaster. We can find ourselves employed, but in a job that doesn't suit us very well, that doesn't mesh very well with our gifts and interests and abilities. It's interesting to think about how work has gone wrong in our own day, in our uh, particular cultural moment. It's very interesting. If you go back and uh, you look at history, coming out of the Great Depression, uh, you had a generation that was happy to have any kind of work. There had been so few jobs for so long when the Depression finally ended, people were, were happy to have any kind of work that would pay the bills. It didn't matter much what it was. They weren't looking for fulfillment in their job. They were just looking for survival in a way to get by. But now we have become so prosperous, we tend to look too much for our fulfillment in our work. We tend to get too much of our identity in our work. We tend to think now, in in the way the world is today, that if we can just find that occupational sweet spot, if we can find that dream job, the job we were made for, that we will love going to work every day, there will never be a bad day at the office, we'll find our work completely fulfilling But of course, that is to forget the fall. It's to seek more from work than it can provide. Your employer owes you a paycheck. He does not owe you fulfillment. You may or may not find your work fully satisfying in a fallen world. You could be in just the right job and find yourself very frustrated by it a lot of the time. We need to understand life without work tends to be meaningless. But that does not mean we find all of life's meaning in our work. We can actually make an idol out of our work and seek fulfillment there in ways that are actually unhealthy. Because of creation and because of the fall, the work God gives us to do will be both fulfilling and frustrating in turn. That's what we need to understand. That's the first thing we need to understand. God has ordained our work, which means all of our work has meaning and significance to God. The fall has impacted our work, which doesn't negate the importance of work to human life, but it does mean now we work under very different conditions than Adam did in the beginning. But God still ordains our work. He still calls us to it. He still assigns it to us. That's the first thing we have to understand. The second claim the Reformers made concerning work, again, straight out of the Scripture, is simply this. God works through our work. We've already hinted at this, but we need to develop it further. God works through our work. The Reformers argue that legitimate work, all legitimate work, is a form of love and service towards your neighbor. And understanding this really gets us to the core of the Reformed doctrine of vocation. How God is hidden in our work and works through our work to serve our neighbor, to love our neighbor, to provide for our neighbor to get things done in the world that He wants to have happen. God works through our work. 
God calls us to vocation and then He works through those vocations to sustain the world and provide for the world. We need to understand, God has created us dependent. God has created us to be dependent on others and through depending on others, of course, we are ultimately dependent upon God. Martin Luther uh, said that God works through uh, the often very, uh, very ordinary uh, tasks and roles he assigns to us as his way of providing for all of us. Luther develops this most fully and I think uh, articulates it most clearly in his discussion of the Lord's Prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, give us this day our daily bread. And Luther asked the question, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, what are we really praying for? What are we really asking God to do? And this is how Luther answers that question. Luther says, when you pray for daily bread, you are praying for everything that contributes to your having and enjoying your daily bread. He says, you must open up and expand your thinking so that it reaches not only as far as the flour bin and baking oven, but also out over the broad fields, the farmlands, and the entire country that produces, processes, and conveys to us our daily bread and all kinds of nourishment. He says God could easily give you grain and fruit without your plowing and planting. Think of God giving manna uh, from heaven in the wilderness to the Israelites. They didn't have to, 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 to have any of the, you know, there's no farming involved or anything like that. They got their daily bread directly from God. Luther says God could easily do this, but He does not want to do so ordinarily. Ordinarily, God provides for our daily bread through a vast supply chain, through a vast network and web of relationships. You know, in a, in a modern economy, you know, Luther talks about the farmer and the baker and so forth. In a modern economy, we could add truck drivers and factory workers and bankers and forklift drivers and computer programmers and grocery store clerks. All of these people are involved in getting your daily bread. And when you pray, give us this day our daily bread, to pray for your daily bread is to pray for this whole web or network of relationships. It's to pray for this whole network of workers whose gifts and labor all contribute to putting bread on your table. When you pray, give us this day our daily bread, you are really praying for the whole economy and a vast array of workers in all different kinds of fields who are united together, joining together in this web or network of relationships to get the bread from the farmer's field to your table. Luther makes the same point in his exposition of Psalm 147. Uh, Psalm 147, uh, verse 13, uh, says, God strengthens the bars of your gates. And this is how Luther describes that. He says, God strengthens the bars of your gates. Luther asks, how? How does God strengthen the bars? Bars obviously provide for security and safety the security and safety of the city. Uh, Luther says, God strengthens the bars of the city gates in this way. He says, by the word bars, we must understand not only the iron bar that a smith can make, but everything else that helps to protect us, such as good government, good city ordinances, good order and wise rulers. Luther says, all of this is a gift of God. How does God give a city security? Yes, it's through bars that we might actually put up on the gates, but it's all on the, and so we've got the smith who 
makes those bars, but you've also got lawmakers and police officers and those who work in government and politics, all who contribute to the good ordering and the safety and security of the city. See, Luther's point is that God uses vocations. God uses vocations to get things done in the world. And so God teaches through teachers. He maintains law and order through policemen. He heals through physicians. He feeds through farmers. He builds through carpenters. He creates beauty through artists. And Luther says, all our various forms of work are really just different ways of participating in God's work in the world. God does all of these things, but He does them through our varied vocations. And again, Luther says, God could do all these things directly without us. He could provide all of these things directly without any means. But instead, God chooses to use the talents and gifts He has given to others to provide for us in this way. Just as He is using us and our gifts and talents to provide for others. In other words, God not only works in us, He works through us. God not only calls us to the work, but He works through the work. Luther said famously, God milks the cows through the vocation of the milkman. And so Luther says that your work, your ordinary daily job, whether it's, whether it's uh, designing computers or raising children or building houses, your work is a good work. And it is a good work precisely because of the benefit that it brings to others. In fact, one of the things Luther says is that if you do a work that you think is good, but it's only done for God's sake and it doesn't in some way benefit your neighbor as well, Luther says that is not a good work. That's the kind of thing that Luther saw in the monastery, all of these self-invented pieties and, and, and self-invented good works that didn't benefit anyone else. They were only for the sake of the person and his private relationship with God. Luther says that's not really a good work. A good work is measured by how it benefits the wider community, how it expresses love for neighbor. And in redefining vocation this way, and in redefining good works this way, Luther relocated religious life from the narrow realm of the church and monastery to the wide realm of culture and society. Again, he said all of God's people are priests and kings offering sacrifice and advancing the kingdom through their daily work. Advancing dominion through their daily work. Luther had been a monk. And as a monk, he took vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Renouncing economics, family, and government. But when Luther rediscovered vocation, he came to realize that good works are performed precisely in those realms he had repudiated in his monastic vows. So think about this. He had taken a vow of poverty. But now he came to realize that farmers and milkmaids and shoemakers and carpenters, all those who participate in the economy, were giving to and receiving from each other gifts of service and love in a God-ordained network of relationships in which the skills of each serve the good of all. He realized that there was nothing especially virtuous about poverty, nothing virtuous at all about poverty in itself. And there was a great deal of virtue in honest labor that serves the common good 
of the community. He had taken a vow of chastity, renouncing family life and committing himself to a life of celibacy. But now, having discovered the Christian doctrine of vocation, he realized married life can be just as holy as the single life, the celibate life. And that marriage is indeed a blessed institution and a blessed state to enter into. He realized that parenthood is honored by God and God uses the marital union to bring new life into the world and into the church. And so family went from being a kind of second best option for those who weren't spiritual enough, spiritually disciplined enough to opt for the monastery to being a holy vocation in itself where every home became a kind of miniature church. The kind of holy of holies where God is served and receives sacrifice. And of course, family life serves the good, the wider good of the society. He had taken a vow of obedience when he entered the monastery, but he came to realize that Christian citizens have a duty to more than just ecclesiastical authorities. They must obey all God-ordained authorities. And so Luther came to realize that the civil magistrate, far from being just a necessary evil, actually has a lawful and glorious calling in the world as he represents God's rule and God's governance to us, as he seeks to administer justice, punishing evil, and promoting what is righteous. See, the teachings of Luther and Calvin on this changed everything. When commoners, common people, even peasants, were told that they were actually priests and kings in Christ, that their daily work mattered, that it was a sacrificial offering to God, pleasing to Him, when Luther and Calvin unleashed this teaching, society was transformed. The static, feudal structures of medieval society gave way to a free economy with social mobility. And the division of labor was seen as a good thing as society as a whole came to mirror the church with each using their particular gifts for the good of the whole. And this is why flowing out of the Reformation, literacy exploded, education exploded in the aftermath of the Reformation. It's why we got modern science and modern medicine. It's why these things got off the ground after the Reformation. It's why political participation on the part of regular citizens increased exponentially, especially after the glorious revolution in England in 1688 and, of course, the American Revolution in 1776. Those events never could have happened without the Reformation and its doctrine of vocation, which elevated the lives of the commoners as they came to see themselves as part of not just a temporal estate, but a spiritual estate. And their work is meaningful and purposeful in the kingdom of God. The Reformers created a society in which everyone prayed, everyone worked, and everyone ruled. The Reformers created a society in which the division of labor did not privilege some forms of labor at the expense of others, but in which all forms of labor were transformed into a labor of love and sacrifice, pleasing to God and good for the whole of society. The Reformed doctrine of vocation disclosed the true meaning of our everyday life, our everyday work. The Reformed doctrine of vocation revealed the true glory of all your roles and routines and responsibilities. The things that seem so mundane take on a whole new meaning. The 
because see, your vocation is how God shapes your life into a life of love and service and worship. A life of love and service towards your neighbor and a life of service and worship towards God. Because really, that's the purpose of every vocation. Love and service and worship. And so through vocation, we come to realize how the whole of our lives can be offered as a living sacrifice to God for the good of our neighbor and for His will. Let's pray together and give thanks. Father, we do thank You for calling us to our work. We thank You for the assignments and and responsibilities that You have laid on each one of us. And as we come to see our work more and more as a priestly sacrifice performed for Your worship, for Your glory, and for the good and service of our neighbor, as we come to see our work as an expression of love towards You and towards our neighbor, may our work be transformed. May we do it with joy. May we do it with confidence and even with excellence. May we bear up under the burdens You lay upon us knowing these two are part of our vocation. May we do the things in our daily work, our daily lives that are mundane. May we do them with newfound purpose and determination, understanding this. So Father, we pray that You would give this to us. That we might give this to the world. May we be a body of people who rejoice in the callings you have assigned to each of us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.